1: former FBI assistant director Frank Figluzzi. Join me on a journey deep inside the world's premier law enforcement agency to decode the mysteries and challenges of today's FBI. The threats facing America are as real as the men and women who battle to protect us. In this first of a kind podcast, we sit down with active duty FBI personnel who reveal their mission, their cases, and their lives. Let's go inside the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Enter a three-story, 60,000 square foot office building and collect microscopic
2: anthrax spores. You're not seeing the live newscast. You're actually living the scene
1: in a moment in the response uh, to the aftermath of the terror attacks of 9-11.
2: So you should know how to do every role on that eight-man team, whether it be a photographer, sketcher, Evidence collection, team leaders, the tragic loss of life uh, at FBI Miami. Uh, I would want somebody to work one of these scenes like it was one of my family members. A scene of the very first anthrax murder in FBI history. A true whodunit.
1: Our guest this episode is Supervisory Special Agent Richard Marks of the FBI's Evidence Response Teams. If you're a fan of those CSI TV shows, this episode is for you. Richard. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on, Frank. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion.
1: Your work has become a forefront, both in the media and in Hollywood dramas, and has become quite popular and entertaining. But today, we're going to spend some time getting into the reality of crime scenes and evidence response teams in the Bureau. But first, let me ask you this. Our listeners are always interested in our guest background and where they came from and their journey to the FBI and their path within the Bureau. Spend a couple of minutes telling us where you're from, how you got interested in the Bureau, and where you've been assigned in the FBI.
2: I uh, was originally born in Huntsville, Alabama. That's where my father, who was an FBI agent for uh, 28 years, he served in the local resident agency uh, in Huntsville. He and my mother were both FBI employees. So, uh, you know, I grew up in an FBI household, which was really a fabulous place to be because uh, my father had been an agent underneath uh, J. Edgar Hoover in D.C. during the late 60s. And then uh, his first office was Tampa. And then he transferred to Birmingham at the height of the civil rights uh, movement. Uh, I kind of always knew that I would be following in my father's footsteps at some point going into the FBI. And having, you know, a learning desire to get into science, that was where I knew I would probably end up in the FBI, some sort of science background or some sort of thing. So when I started trying to find a career path, uh, forensics became something that was really important to me. I was influenced by the, a lot of the crime scene shows, as many of your listeners are today, probably influenced by the same shows to come and join the FBI or or take a career in forensics. And, and the shows of the 70s, like Quincy, I'm dating myself a little bit now, but that's what really drove me to become interested in forensic sciences as a career path. And so when I went to uh, the University of Alabama in Huntsville, I, I got a degree in chemistry uh, from there. And I, I started working in a local state crime lab, which was the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences Regional Laboratory in Huntsville. So I started doing crime scenes fairly early on. Uh, My first double homicide I saw was at 17. And so while I was working my way through college, I was doing crime scene work, processing scenes. I was getting that that base for eventually moving on to the FBI. So I had 12 years experience in a local crime lab before I came to the FBI.
1: Uh, Richard, you... um First of all, you've got my attention with uh, double homicide at age seventeen. You definitely had your foot in uh, in the, your future career very, very early. I'm also uh, taken by the fact that I believe you're our third guest with who is an FBI legacy uh, guest, meaning that they had uh, family members in the bureau, and uh, I think that may become a theme as we go through our episodes and our our various guests. How did you? Uh, How did you first come to apply to the Bureau, and um, what were your first assignments?
2: I first applied to the Bureau uh, in the middle 90s, uh, probably about 1995. Uh, At the time, so many times in this organization and and government agencies, there's there's hiring freezes. And at that particular point, I was caught in that hiring freeze. But I eventually got to a point, there was a, a gentleman that was a recruiter down in the Birmingham office, Ashley Curry. Who was basically, you know, got me into the Bureau because he saw me at an instructor development class. I gave a presentation on firearms and he said, uh, Have you ever thought about joining the FBI? And I said, It's funny you mentioned that. I've been waiting because of the hiring freeze. And uh, within just a few months, they had me scheduled for a class. And so I was eventually at the FBI Academy by March of 1997. And that's when I started my career in the FBI. My First field office right out of the academy, and really my only field office was the Philadelphia field office where I went as a new agent, and I was initially signed to a drug squad there in Philadelphia. Uh, I worked there as a new agent for approximately a year. Uh, At that time, it was common for us to be rotated among many different squads to kind of get us a feeling of the office, experience doing different crimes, finding our niche, so to speak, in the office. And uh, at that time, I landed on the violent crime uh, fugitive squad in Philadelphia, which was primarily charged with doing bank robberies, fugitives, violent crime, armored car robberies, those type of things. So it was a, a great office to be in. I still pride myself having been a part of the Philadelphia division, but it was uh, it was what laid the groundwork to eventually led me to the FBI laboratory.
1: And, and Richard Tell us a bit about some of your travels with regard to evidence response deployment. You know, it's one thing for us to watch a TV show where there's a local homicide or violent crime and that scene needs to be processed. But when you move up to the federal level and the global level, the enormity of responsibility and the scale of the international crime that needs to be processed for the U.S. court system is incredibly impressive. Tell us about your own travels and some of the highest profile cases that you're permitted to talk about.
2: I think the one of the big selling points of the evidence response team in the Bureau, basically the crime scene unit for the entire FBI, is that you get to lay hands on a particular item, item of evidence that is unknown to everybody else, that might change the complete direction of the case. And that might be anything from a bullet uh, to a footprint to the remnants of a, a bomb. It could be anything. And, and so the exciting thing that drives you is that suddenly you found something that takes this from being a bombing scene to a terrorist event. So finding that one crucial piece of evidence, if you look back at you know some of our historic cases like uh, Oklahoma City, finding the axle of the truck, that key component it really drove the case to finding the rental truck, to finding the suspect. So being that first person to find that evidence is really uh, a, a alluring part of what our program does. So for me, when I was with the state crime lab, seeing Oklahoma City on TV and seeing that type of scene was really kind of inspiring to say, wow, just to work a crime scene that big, that must be a really daunting task. And uh, how do they run something so big? How do they coordinate it? That was before I joined the Bureau. And once I got into the Bureau, within a year of being in the Bureau, 1998, August of 1998, the embassy was bombed in Nairobi, Kenya, along with the one in Tanzania. And that was my first overseas deployment. And, And here you have a scene where over 200 people were killed. Several thousand, you know, three or four thousand people were injured in the blast. That scene was much bigger than Oklahoma City in scope. And, and to be there, it, was, it seemed much smaller when you're actually in a large scene. Plus, you're not seeing the live newscast. You're actually living the scene in the moment. you you become removed from what is an historic event. Uh, to everybody else in the world, and you're just you're working the scene and you're tackling it just like you would a regular crime scene, but the scope and, and the implications internationally are much different than it is uh, on a regular smaller homicide scene, if you will. So it's it's a it's it's a very interesting thing to experience having gone from a local level to something so big, and the bureau has been fortunate enough to have teams that deploy to assist other countries in. Times of crisis, whether it be a criminal terrorist attack or a humanitarian effort. So if you look at some of the ones that I've been involved in besides the 1998 bombing in Nairobi, we went over in 2004 and 2005 and helped uh, the Thai police identify victims of the Thailand tsunami. That was a humanitarian effort, mostly driven by fingerprint examiners from the FBI laboratory and DNA examiners. So we now continue that spirit with our own disaster victim identification unit in the FBI lab, which we routinely deploy and assist in those scenes where we can aid in identifying people. So if you have a natural disaster under federal law, we're allowed to help in a humanitarian effort. So take, for instance, uh, Ethiopian airline crash, Flight 302, that went down a couple of years ago in Ethiopia, you know, you had uh, about 149 people on board of that plane, and our fingerprint examiners went over. I was part of that team. Uh, we went over and we identified 48 people from 18 different countries on that particular plane. So it's not uncommon for the Bureau to deploy uh, overseas and, and assist in other countries, for instance, uh, the bombing and uh, mall attacks in Nairobi, Kenya. So it, we do provide that certain bit of uh, Of ability to help and assist our partner countries in in terrorist attacks. And then sometimes those terrorist attacks uh, have implications for the United States. So uh, if you look back, the Nairobi bombings, Osama bin Laden was behind that. So we did have a U.S. interest in in not only the deaths that occurred at the U.S. Embassy, but the long-term terrorist investigation
1: yeah, the the history of your own personal deployments uh, to evidence scenes is really a history of the the modern uh, highest profile crime scenes in in bureau history. And I know that you've you've also been involved uh, extensively as as is is the case with most FBI evidence response team members at the time in the response uh, to the aftermath of the terror attacks of nine eleven. Tell us a little bit about your experience uh, where you were assigned after 9-11. There were obviously three major uh, crash scenes, the Pentagon, uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and of course, the World Trade Center in New York. Which of those, and perhaps there were more uh, for you, but which of those were you assigned to?
2: So I was in a Philadelphia office in, in 2001, September 2001. And I was briefing our SWAT team on an upcoming arrest that we were getting ready to do, as far as some of the evidence that we had seen, and uh, when when the planes crashed into the towers of in New York City, my office uh, sent an evidence response team. You know, it was coordinated through the FBI lab from the evidence response unit, and the Philadelphia office sent a team to New York City. And as you said, you know, we had multiple sites that were attacked, uh, and that's really. You know, the bureau has this proactive measure where we've we've trained in the past, we've standardized our training, we try to use the same equipment so that if we have a multi-team response like the nine eleven attacks, we can take multiple teams from different field offices and basically plug and play to increase our numbers. So you might have a team that has thirty or forty people on it, but suddenly you can grow that team to several hundred people, and that's what we did in the nine eleven attack. So, the Philadelphia office sent me to uh, New York City, and ultimately I ended up at uh, Fresh Kills Landfill. For those that don't know, Fresh Kills is actually Dutch for fresh stream. So we went to the Fresh Kills Landfill, which has been a large landfill operation for many years in New York. But it, this particular area had closed just in March of that year. And so it was 175 acres of land that, that was open to being utilized uh, to sift through the remnants of the trades towers. So as they brought the material out of ground zero, we set up a giant city along with the New York City Police Department to process 1.8 million tons of debris down to a quarter inch size. Uh, And roughly just from that operation alone out at Fresh Kills Landfill, we recovered about 4,500 human remains, processed about 1,300 vehicles, and recovered about 75,000 personal effects.
1: Well, thank you for your work there. I I know that, uh, and, and as we continue to learn, some of that evidence uh, work and processing was actually toxic. Was actually hazardous to the health of those who were deployed, and I, I think that kind of escapes us sometimes when we we think about nine eleven as the the impact on on health for those who had to work the scenes and process the evidence. You talked. Uh, earlier with me about uh, another significant event that you were involved in. And that this is an example of support of local and state law enforcement. And that's the Dallas, Texas uh, shooting um, involving multiple police officers, multiple rounds fired, a large crime scene. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So in the situation of the Dallas police shooting, uh, we had a very difficult situation where the Dallas police department a lone gunman shot and killed five police officers in downtown Dallas. The scene was very emotional for a lot of the officers that responded to it because many of those officers worked with uh, the the slain officers. And uh, the local office there reached out to the Dallas Police Department asking if they could help provide assistance. And uh, the Dallas Police Department requested the FBI lab come in and and document uh, the scene. And this scene was an area around a local community college in downtown Dallas where several city blocks had been affected. Uh, so you have a lot of documentation. You have a lot of trajectory evidence. And, and a lot of times in these cases where you have, a, for instance, like the Navy Yard or the Pulse nightclub, even though the, the suspect is dead, you still have to document the scene uh, because you never know if there's a co-conspirator. It also helps uh, some of the family members, especially in this instance, to see uh, how their loved ones um, died in a dignified manner. And so that's what the FBI lab did. We went uh, our firearms and tool marks unit along with our operational projects unit from the laboratory, went in and actually documented all the trajectories. The evidence was collected by multiple evidence response teams from around the country that came in in to help support it. And then all of that documentation, the evidence, all of that was uh, sent to our operational projects unit in the laboratory. And they created a, a visual and digital walking experience to go through the crime scene so that the families could walk through and see the crime scene without experience in um, graphic images. They could, But they could see how the crime scene unfolded. They could see how the shooter moved through the crime scene, how he was engaged, and actually hear police recordings of the radio. So the ultimate... It, end piece was to give uh, the Dallas Police Department and, and the families a little bit of closure uh, if we could. It's always something that you, you know, you, when you work these scenes, at least I can speak from personal experience, and, and, and this is not corny. This is what I truly believe, that uh, I would want somebody to work one of these scenes like it was one of my family members. And I, I take that to heart whenever we go out on these things. And, and we work hand-in-hand hand with our Victim Services Division, to actually uh, engage uh, a lot of the, the families to make sure that we're we're finding the important personal effects that they might have dropped to get them back to them at some point, but also keeping mind that we might have a case to prosecute. So it, it goes hand in hand with these these scenes that if you're not looking out for the victims' families in respect to their emotional well being and what you're how you're documenting, that you're also missing a component of it. So we have one part where we're we're collecting the evidence. But uh, sometimes things that are not evidence that belong to family members, we run across those on the scene. And it might be something as simple as a cell phone or a wallet and and getting those back to family members. Because uh, you think about where all your family photos are now. They're on a cell phone. And if it's not something that's part of the criminal investigation, it should go back in a quick and timely manner to the families.
1: You're helping us put a very human face on uh, what could otherwise be a cold, rigorous, uh, simple scientific process to processing uh, a crime scene. Much more recently, Richard, there was the tragic loss of life uh, at FBI Miami where two agents uh, were slain as they executed a search warrant in a crimes against children case. Was uh, was there evidence response team in, involvement There as well.
2: Yes, uh, and I was part of that team that responded to that uh, incident, along with uh, other individuals from our unit and the laboratory. Again, our firearms and tool marks unit and our operational project unit worked hand in hand with uh, uh, the Tampa evidence response team to process the scene down there. You know, because anytime we we found in the past that uh, you know an office suffers a loss like that, it affects a lot of people in the office, especially those that worked with the agents. And so, um, you know, it was um, our duty to come down and, and assist our fellow agents uh, in processing a scene, because many times at these scenes, there's 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 things that victims and families and and even fellow law enforcement shouldn't see, and that's kind of way the evidence response team. You're kind of that that wall, if you will, between what collecting evidence and then what the families should see. So, you know. When we're there collecting that evidence, we want to make sure that we get it and do it the way it's supposed to be done for court, collect it, document it. But then you have, you know, that that human emotion that you have funerals going on. You have uh, family members that have been affected. So it's really a humbling experience when you're there because for an FBI agent, being at a scene like that, you have done that same type of work. And so, you know, the kind of work that they're doing, the importance of the work that those agents were doing and, um, it could have been any one of us. And so your thoughts and prayers are always with those those agents and their families during those difficult times.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that and, and giving us some insights into those inner workings. All right, let's take a 60-second ad break so I can tell you about something called Acorn TV. During the pandemic, TV has been a saving grace for many of us by now a lot of us feel like we're caught up on every single show imaginable. If you're tired of scrolling through the same movies or shows and coming up empty, you should try acorn TV. Like I have acorn TV has compelling stories, exclusive premieres and originals. You won't find elsewhere. There's always something new with hundreds of shows from around the world and new releases every week. If you like my podcast, you'll like the Acorn TV series called Jack Irish. He's an Aussie, private investigator, aided by his girlfriend, and his cases plunge him into Melbourne's criminal underbelly. Acorn TV costs only a fraction of most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. Do what I've done and try Acorn TV free for 30 days. Go to acorn.tv and use my promo code FRANK, entered in all lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code FRANK, for 30 days of free Acorn TV. This episode is sponsored by Helix Sleep. If you want to finally get a good night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com bureau. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match your body type and sleep preferences to a customized mattress to give you the best sleep of your life. A good night's sleep means a lot to me. And with Helix, you get a customized mattress, perfect for the way you sleep. Helix has soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down. Mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for a plus-size sleeper. And delivery and setup are fast and easy. Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. They're recommended by leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving sleep. There's a 10-year warranty, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. Helix even has financing and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix offers up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows to listeners of my podcast at helixsleep.com slash bureau. Now let's return to our guest. Let's talk about the field and the evidence response teams in the field. Uh, How many evidence teams are there? What does selection and training look like? Give us a, a feel for that across the bureau.
2: So one of the beautiful things about the evidence response team is the standardization of training. And that's the main goal of the the program is to have this, this force of people from all across the country. Every office, all 56 field offices has an evidence response team. And the size of that evidence response team is dictated by the office and the kind of work it does. So New York, Los Angeles, they have some of the largest teams that we have in the Bureau of about 40 individuals on each team. Uh, and in those teams, you have smaller eight-man sets, and so uh, we everybody on those little eight-man teams has a role that they're trained, and they're they're also trained to do different roles. So our thought process is you should know how to do every role on that eight-man team, whether it be the photographer, sketcher, evidence collection, team leader, because sometimes the people are going to change, the scene's going to change, who's available to go is going to change. Uh, so the teams are all consistently trained in how to do everybody else's job. And then they all get the same training at Quantico, at our training facility. And then um, we can mix and match those teams as needed for the scene. So if you have a large-scale event, say a Boston bombing or an airplane crash that we might be supporting the NTSB, we can sit, take a 40-man team and we can make them a two- or 300-man team just by bringing in additional surrounding evidence response teams from local field offices. Those teams from the responding offices will be made up of agents, professional support from all types of disciplines inside their office. And I think that's what makes the teams stronger because of the diversity of the individuals from inside the office. So you've got people from filing crime, white-collar crime. You might have professional support that that does Certain things that would lend themselves, whether it be electronics or uh, computer specialties, that that might lend themselves well to being on an evidence response team. And the makeup of the teams is approximately about fifty percent FBI agents and about fifty percent professional support. So it's a good blend that we find uh, across the bureau. And right now we have about thirteen hundred people trained to do evidence response team work and and how to and deploy across the country. So. That's a good number for us to have. And and when you think about it, the 1,300 actually gives us a workforce that no police department really can help support because when you have something like the Dallas police shooting, they have a large scale scene that's going to take anywhere from nine to 11 days on average for a mass shooting. It's hard for a police department to cease daily operations and go do crime scene work for nine to 11 days. And for us to be able to dump two to 300 people out to assist. State and federal partners is part of the work that we do as far as bringing something to the table for state and local entities. So that's the thing. Your first responders will be the local field office, and then we can, within an hour, we can bring in more additional support. We can have lab teams fly out. Typically, we get flying support to travel to these scenes through our Critical Incident Response Group, our CIRG. They may all the airplanes and so that's who takes us to all these locations in relatively quick fashion so when we have like a pulse nightclub shooting we can deploy very quickly
0: the title fbi agent comes with reward preceded by immense responsibility agents are vital in large scale investigations like the pulse nightclub shooting in 2015. 49 people were murdered inside the orlando nightclub it became a massive multi-agency investigation, including agents from Jacksonville. I think most people on my team would say it was one of the worst scenes that we've ever encountered just because of the number of people who were killed.
1: I think one of the things our uh, listeners might be surprised to learn because of the steady diet of uh, Hollywood TV and, and motion picture drama that depicts crime scene, uh, uh, investigators as these kind of full-time specialists, um, which may exist in, in many police departments, but in the FBI, this is an ancillary duty. These are folks saying, I want to do this in addition to my existing assignment. Do I have that right?
2: That's absolutely correct, Frank. The, Positions on the evidence response team are collateral duties for everybody pretty much in the FBI. Uh, with occasional, some of the our senior team leaders that that manage these teams in bigger offices are full-time, but they have a lot of duties as far as reporting and purchasing of equipment and things like that that, that also takes their time. But most everybody that belongs to these teams, it's a collateral duty that they have other responsibilities in the office. And, and those are Case agents from squads where they're actually working other cases. um, You know, people like myself that was on a bank robbery squad, I I would do evidence response team work between my bank robberies. So everybody's got a a particular skill set in the office. They could be a file uh, manager, they could be a professional support, and that works in, uh, you know, doing administrative work, they could be doing uh, auto mechanics, they could be doing other things in the FBI, but they also have a collateral duty of being on the evidence response teams. They could be a field photographer, any of those things that we do have professional support doing, they can be a part of the team as well and join the agents in, in processing in these large scale scenes. You know, speaking of kind of the,
1: the CSI effect or the Hollywood effect on, on folks, you must have a lot of young people that once they hear what you do uh, approach you and say, Hey, how do I do this? How do I sign up for this really cool looking? job and and uh, what what do you tell those young people what do you tell them about potential college majors and and then do you share the reality that at least in the FBI there this is an extracurricular
2: i think you have to look at the the way the bureau when we hire people we we have such great diversity in the backgrounds of the people that come to work for the FBI so you can as you well know you have people that come in with backgrounds in marketing banking Chemistry, uh, lawyers that come, lawyers that come in, so you have this huge diversified field of people that come in from all kinds of different job backgrounds. Most of them start out, you know, wanting to be on the evidence response team or those type of things. I would encourage you now. There's so many programs out there that actually teach uh, forensics that are catering to this this new world of, of forensics. When I started there was none of this. And so I went into it knowing I would need to major in something like chemistry or biology, biochemistry, something with a strong science background. And I think that's the thing you've got to look at when you're looking at a forensic science program is the science. Because when you go to work at a lab, uh, like the FBI laboratory, you want to have a degree in chemistry or biology. Those are the strongest degrees to have in a laboratory. So when you look at programs to get training and you want to have programs that are strong in and, and forensic biology or forensic chemistry. Uh, those are the ones that you want to steer towards. I started out uh, working as an intern, uh, not getting paid, but an intern in a forensic lab. So, you know, it's something that I highly encourage people that, that they should apply for you know, technician spots just to see if they like it, because this kind of work is not cut out for everybody. Uh, the, the, the gruesome nature sometimes of the job, um, having to work in crime scenes and intimate situations like people's houses is not for everybody. Uh, it's something that you might want to, you know, test the waters first.
1: Yeah, I like that idea of the, uh, the internship experience for just about everything. You know, similarly, with regard to the CSI or Hollywood effect, um, do you have any any feel for whether juries in criminal trials have been impacted by the perceptions of what they think should be done at a crime scene, what they expect to be done uh, in a half hour uh, TV series that might not jive with reality.
2: Most of these shows have caused what we term the CSI effect in the, the laboratory. And it makes a unrealistic expectation of what can be done in a timely fashion. Think about it. You have a show that's on TV like Law and Order and they go to the homicide scene Within 15 minutes of the show, they're back at the office. They've already got all the DNA results. The firearms is completely done. All of that is there in, in 15 minutes. And I think it creates an unrealistic expectation of what is done and how much can be done at scenes. The shows have these really detailed, integrated plot lines and stories. And, and it does a lot of times mimic real life, but it, it creates uh, for juries certain expectations that. All of these examinations will be done on a scene. So, for instance, you have a a husband and wife. Uh, the husband might kills the wife in the house. He lives there. You would ex- expect uh, to find his fingerprints there because he's there on a daily basis. He lives there. There's no disputing that. But, you know, nowadays, because juries are so used to having fingerprints as part of a TV show, uh, they expect the prosecution to put on something about fingerprints. And many times juries see that if the fingerprints are not talked about, then maybe the case is not complete or that there's something missing. So it's caused this ripple effect, I think, in in many criminal justice systems across the country that you have to do all the examinations, even though the the outcome is already known. And so you have a situation like that where the man lives in the house, he owns the house, his reasonable expectation have been there numerous times, and suddenly, you know, they want to do a fingerprint exam on his house when he, he lives there all the time. So it's just one of those things that CSI shows have done to law enforcement in general. So they, they, you know, have that certain expectation that, fam- that viewers expect and jurors expect now to see all that stuff uh, when it goes to trial
1: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know we've learned through this podcast and other episodes that the crime threat, the terror threat is that they're all becoming more sophisticated, and I take it that means that the crime scene, the terror scene is also more sophisticated and and even more dangerous. Can you talk about enhanced training for evidence response team members, like in the area of radiological bio or chem? environments, having to operate in a hazardous material environment to gather evidence. What, what does that uh, look like in terms of training and capability?
2: If you look at forensic science over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, just the progression of wearing PPE or personal protective equipment for bloodborne pathogens uh, has increased dramatically because we became more aware of things that might be transmitted, you know, through blood like hepatitis and things became much more, uh, the education was better about what, what could be encountered at a crime scene. But, you know, at some point, because we deal in a world that has chemicals and the threats are there, uh, we have to train our people to give them the ability to collect evidence, not only in hazardous conditions, but to collect evidence that might also be hazardous to, to the collector. So, uh, for instance, if you had a, somewhere where you had an environmental condition where the, the air is maybe tainted with a poisonous gas, uh, you know, you might have to go in there and collect a gun out of a room that you have no way to vent this gas or, or allow it to escape, or there might be some corrosive chemicals in there. So you have to be able to work in an environment like that. Or you might collect something, for instance, during 2001 when we had all the anthrax letters, 2002— all of that time period where we had the anthrax letters being uh, mailed across the country. Here's something that's dangerous to people that was being mailed through the mail. And uh, we we had to be able to collect that evidence and go into facilities like the mail facilities and collect those types of evidence. So we we take our people uh, that uh, once they've done the evidence response team training, uh, we also give them hazardous material training. So We want to train them uh, along with our technical hazards response unit at the laboratory. We train them on how to collect evidence in environmental situations like that. And so teaching our people how to wear the proper equipment, what is the proper respirator to wear, what is the proper gloves to wear, how to decon themselves when they come out of a crime scene. Those are all important ways to, you know, enhance our program and make it better through being able to collect uh, evidence in hazardous environments.
1: I gained tremendous respect for the capabilities and and the men and women of the FBI's evidence response teams uh, when I was the on-scene commander in 2001 in Boca Raton, Florida, at the scene of the very first anthrax murder in FBI history. And watching that Miami team do something that had never been done before, enter a three-story, 60,000-square-foot office building and collect microscopic anthrax spores for evidence um, was a sight to behold. And um, the capabilities are just really impressive. Talk about some of the other capabilities. You know, it seems like bad guys are always tossing evidence into bodies of water, guns, bodies, uh, et cetera. What's uh, what is the capability to collect evidence underwater?
2: We we have a team of specialists in the FBI that are our underwater evidence response team. People that uh, are divers that uh, collect evidence uh, in environments like that. And before all of your listeners, you know, think that it's some exotic location like the Bahamas where they're diving recovering guns. Many of these are, are backwater uh, cesspools that that the water is, is less than desirable, where everything is done by feel. Uh, and so the first time that many of these divers that we have that are recovering weapons in the water or recovering human remains, uh, the first time that they get a sense that they have evidence is when they touch it with their hands. Sure, they use sophisticated technology like uh, sonar, side scan sonar, different things to help them pinpoint where the evidence is at. But uh, it's a very up close and personal thing when they actually go into water and lay hands on a particular item of evidence. You know they may locate it using a magnetometer uh, because of it's made out of metal, but uh, when you when you have to find a, a missing person or a body in the water, uh, the first time that they know that they're theres is, is either they see the image on the radar or they actually lay hands on it and it's so it's a it's a very uh, Tight group of people, and we have them in, in all of our major offices. We have a, a, a underwater search and evidence response team in all of our offices. We call them USERT, and they actually go into water and do all of our collecting of evidence for those types of scenes where you know traditional forensics, like uh, our land-based teams, would not be able to go. And so they're a vital part of what we do in the evidence response team. And um, you know, collecting evidence in those areas is is, is what they do best. Richard, is there a case that
1: stands out in your mind as kind of showcasing all of the various ERT capabilities and coming together in a successful way to uh, to prove a case that really stretched perhaps the capabilities or or again featured just about everything that an ERT can do? Is there something uh, like that you can share with us?
2: Sure. Uh, if you look at the 2013. 2013- uh, Boston Marathon bombing uh, that is probably a, a benchmark of all the resources that the FBI could throw at something you have a a bombing uh, that killed three people in Boston uh, improvised explosive device and so we we leveraged everything from uh, special agent bomb techs from the FBI laboratory to the evidence response teams to our shooting our, our laboratory shooting reconstruction team but you also have to think about all the uh, computer examiners, the uh, video surveillance that had to be received, cataloged, looked at. This was a truly who-done-it case, and so many times in the bureau we have a pretty good idea early on, uh, either in a mass shooting, you know, because the suspect is dead, or we have a, a white-collar crime case that was initiated that we know who the subject is. But this was a truly who done it? case that the subjects were still out there, that we had an immediate threat that they were going to plan another attack. And so it was a rush to get all of our resources to bear on this thing to try to identify it. So, you know, when you think about it, you have this one incidence uh, where you're tackling the crime scene with the state and locals there in downtown Boston. You're processing the scene. You're collecting evidence. You have bomb techs that identify the pressure cooker you have people from uh, our audio imaging units at uh, our Operation and Technology Division (OTD) that are looking at trying to enhance the video, uh, making a timeline of the bombers, and then ultimately identifying them, uh, and, and then capturing uh, one of them. Uh, the, one of the brothers died, uh, but the other one uh, was captured and, and taken to trial. So this was a a true who done it that that. That culminated in his capture in the backyard of a Watertown residence there in Massachusetts where he was captured at the boat.
1: This morning, the FBI, along with Boston PD, Massachusetts State Police and ATF, officially began its forensic evidence recovery effort at the site. Their goal was to recover physical items related to the blast. Those items were, have been recovered and are being sent to the FBI's laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. There, specialized examiners will reconstruct the device or devices and determine its makeup and components.
2: So this case really spanned multiple jurisdictions, uh, had multiple types of evidence that had to be examined, whether it be digital or, or physical. And uh, it, it really called all the resources of the Bureau to bear on this thing. Luckily, we have hundreds of thousands of agents that are equipped to do this and professional support that, that are the the you know backbone of what we do in these investigations and help us move large amounts of data and go through the resources to look at uh, all of the things that came in on this case so this one was really one that touched pretty much every every part of the bureau
1: i think we've given our listeners some food for thought so the next time that they're watching a breaking news report on some tragic scene or attack or major case near them or across the world, they should give a moment of pause and realize that it's quite likely that somewhere an FBI evidence response team is on its way or already on the scene. And that's played out even recently in some high profile events. We watched uh, with dismay uh, this last Christmas Eve as a bomb went off in a vehicle in downtown Nashville. We've watched a more recently horrible, tragic shooting that took the life of a police officer in Boulder, Colorado at the King Super supermarket there. Were those examples, uh, Richard, of uh, where FBI personnel may have deployed to gather evidence?
2: Yes, both uh, those scenes were uh, heavily assisted by the FBI. Uh, We we, we went in and and, uh, helped uh, in Denver, Uh, with the the supermarket uh, shooting there, and then uh, the Nashville bombing. I was uh, there at the Nashville bombing with teams from all around the country. Uh, We brought in uh, a lot of individuals there, multiple agencies uh, to assist. Um, It was uh, a huge undertaking for both of those scenes because that's what our people train for is to be there um, and, and to work in those conditions, long hours with not much fanfare, to be those people that we talked about earlier to to lay eyes on that first piece of evidence. And that's really what everybody that's a part of this program feels passionate about. Uh, It's what I feel passionate about. And, and like I said, it's what we try to do is, you know, work the scenes just the way we would want somebody to work it for our family. So, you know, you can rest assured that if we have another one of these and, you know, it's a realistic expectation that we will, because we've been trying to stop bank robbery since the Wild Wild West. So, if one person's going to commit a crime and they don't tell anybody, it's 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 probably going to happen. So it's something that we all feel a very strong passion to be a part of this program. And, um, you know, I, I find it a, a privilege and an honor to help people out doing this kind of work, even though at times it can be long and, and tiring and then worn down by the amount and the hours that are on scene. But you know you don't really think about that because it's 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 something that we all train to do and it's all something we're very passionate about
1: well it's often the case that something well worth doing demands a sacrifice and we're we're truly glad for people like you and all of the evidence response team members throughout the FBI for what you do to keep us safe and to solve crimes i've often said that uh, what the FBI really does for a living is always far more compelling than any Hollywood drama or TV series, and I think you've helped us understand that today. Supervisory Special Agent Richard Marks of the FBI's Laboratory Division, and more specifically, the FBI's Evidence Response Teams. Richard, thanks for sharing what you did with us.
2: Thank you, I appreciate it, Frank, and and I hope uh, you know at least listeners with a little better understanding of of our folks and what they do on a daily basis. Indeed. Thanks again for
1: listening to Episode 10 of The Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. Please join me next time as we journey into Native American tribal reservations for an episode on the FBI in Indian Country.
0: The Bureau is written by Frank Figluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey. This show is engineered by Matt Brousseau, with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for the Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent, creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.